Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, let me uh, pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang together, and we ask, Spirit, that you would work good within us. And uh, we confess as best we can that we don't know exactly what that good would even be or look like or feel like. So we ask, Father, that you would answer our prayer, even if we don't know how it would be answered, that you'd meet every single one of us in the places where we are through this word that we're going to read together and talk about together and think about together. That you would do whatever it is you need to do, that we would experience whatever it is that we need to experience or feel, that we would know what we need to know. Father, meet each one of us inside of faith or outside of faith, feeling really close and near to you or feeling really far from you, not sure how we feel. Meet all of us and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. We have been uh, reading the story of the first Christians together from the book of Acts. And for the last three weeks, we have been following the Apostle Paul on his journeys. And uh, as we saw last week, he had been jailed uh, in Philippi. And so after he left there, he went to three other cities, including Thessalonica, um, where he was threatened um, under mob violence. And so he left Thessalonica, went to another city, but some of the bad actors from Thessalonica followed him there. And so his companions decided that it was best for Paul to go off as far away as he could. And so Paul sailed off to Athens alone. Athens was the undisputed intellectual capital of the empire. So I'm going to read from Acts 17 for us, verses 16 through 34. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So sometimes uh, at weddings, I like to tell a story. Uh, Pastor Jeff out at Boulevard Presbyterian, he tells the story too, I think, with a little different twists at the end of it. It seems to me um, that it can't possibly be a story that actually happened, um, but I don't know for sure. Maybe it did happen. It's a story about two boys who were out in the woods exploring one day. Um, they're out just knocking around, throwing stuff, you know, digging stuff up, punching each other, that kind of thing. And they come up to this house that looks up to them to be an abandoned house that no one's living in. So, of course, they start exploring around the house, and they go around to the back of the house, and there's a tennis court there. Now, they don't know uh, that it's a tennis court because they've never played tennis, but they can definitely tell it's a place where games are played. And there's this old tennis ball there. And so they make up this game where they kick the tennis ball to each other over the net. Here's what those little boys don't know. Those little boys don't know that the house is not abandoned that the owner of the house is inside and he's watching them play this made-up game on his tennis court. And so soon he marches out to meet them and of course the boys freak out when they see him, but the owner doesn't mean them any harm. He has actually two tennis rackets in his hand. He has a can of fresh tennis balls in his hand. He gives each of them a racket, he tightens up the net, and then he teaches them how to play tennis. And as they're playing, they think, ah, that, that is what this place is for. That's what this is for. And while they're playing, one of the boys says to the owner of the house, this game may be harder than the one we made up, but it's way, way better. Now, if you want to know what that has to do with getting hitched, you'll have to come to a wedding sometime, and maybe I'll tell that story. Um, but I think it is a pretty good image of what Paul does in Athens that day. He sees the people there are really, really religious. They're trying to make sense out of God or the gods. They're, they're trying to make sense out of how to live as human beings. They're grasping for ways to make sense out of life. They're trying on these different things to see if they can get a coherent vision for what it means to be alive in this world. They're grasping at it, trying to figure it out. Just like those boys on that tennis court. 
And Paul sees them, and he's really moved. And when he gets a chance, he takes it. Just like the owner of that house, he tries to show them the real thing. He tries to tell them, this is what God is really like. This is what he really wants. This is what God is doing in our world. And this is where you fit into that story. It is an audacious thing that he does, and gutsy and risky. And I think it's a little bit thrilling. And this story works on people like us in a lot of ways, at least two ways I can think of. It reminds us, too, of the real thing, the true story of the world, (laughs) what this world is made for, what we have been made for. And it also teaches people like us to be on the lookout for ways to think and speak about Jesus, not in abstractions, but in the context of the culture that we actually live in, in the context of the longings that you and I actually feel as humans in this world. So like I said, Paul is in Athens. He's there alone because he's waiting for his friends to join him. Athens, of course, was the home, the birthplace of all the heavyweights of human thinking, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, all of the rest. It was the intellectual home of the settled world. Now, of course, the empire was ruled out of Rome, but Athens still continued to occupy an outsized influence on the worlds of art and drama and literature and architecture. Culturally speaking, it was still very much the capital of those things, the capital of the world in those ways. And its influence was felt by people who had never been to Athens, who had never even learned how to read, who had never, if they knew how to read, ever read a poem or a tragedy or a comedy, or a treatise in their lives. Because as Athens thought, right, about how to see the world, about what was reasonable and unreasonable, or virtuous, or without virtue, or what human life was for, as Athens thought, so thought the rest of the world. It is hard, really, to imagine something that bears that much influence in our world today, I don't think that there is any one place that does that any longer. It's a little bit scary to think that maybe it is the popular and pervasive social media platforms that hold that much influence in our world. So Paul's education, of course, had made him conversant with the thought life of Athens. As we'll see, he can quote the classic poets off the top of his head, but it's one thing to know about it. It is another thing altogether to actually be there. He is surrounded by the artifacts of this way of life. He's there where the Parthenon and the Acropolis are. He's surrounded everywhere by statues, statues of Diana and Apollo and Jupiter and Bacchus and Neptune and innumerable others, all of them cast in gold and silver and brass and stone and marble. Luke says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. I mean, of course, this unsettled his Jewish sensibilities. He was raised on a very strong diet of anti-idolatry. But I think there's more to it than that. I think he sees in this city what this is doing to these people, what it does to people everywhere, grasping, groping for truth, hanging on to stuff. They can't ultimately bear up to that weight. 
So this provocation of spirit leads him to do really what he always does when he goes to some new place. He finds people to talk to about Jesus. (laughs) He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace. He talks to whoever happens to be there in those places. And the marketplace wasn't just where people bought things. It was the center of the life of the city. Goods were traded there, and so were ideas. Luke tells us that Paul talked to the Epicureans there. He talked to the Stoics there. I checked uh, all of this out with Larissa, our director of ministries, because she knows about these things, and I don't want to sound like a dope. So let me tell you that, generally speaking, Epicureans, they believe that the gods were remote largely disinterested in human beings. As Larissa put it, they were living their best life, and that meant humans should too. Don't swing to extremes. Be serene. Enjoy what you can. The Stoics had a very different take. God was in everything. The gods were everywhere, woven into the soul of the world. And so humans' best bet was to live in harmony with nature, in harmony with reason, because these were the places where God was. And as Paul's back and forth with these groups that draw him into the intellectual center of the city, they call him a babbler, they say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, but you can tell they kind of like it. (laughs) They like hearing what he has to say. And so they lead him to the Areopagus, which is sometimes called Mars Hill. was this prominent hill over the city where the highest court met. And by the time Paul is there in the first century, it was also the place where the Council of Athens met. These were the people that kept watch over the city's morals and education and religion. It's not entirely clear if Paul is in trouble or not in front of them. But what is clear is that they want to hear what he has to say. They ask him about this new teaching. We want to hear about these strange things you're bringing to our ears. We want to know what they mean. And then Luke, the writer, in verse 21, stops the action, and he gives us a little commentary on what's going on. It's very unusual for Luke to do this. It's worth paying attention to. He says all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. (laughs) Luke peels back the veneer of intellectual curiosity And he exposes a little piece of what's underneath. These people are bored. They're restless. They're stuck in a kind of mental and spiritual adolescence, always figuring, always forming, never becoming, always waiting for the next diversion, always hoping for the next distraction. Tell me something new. You know, this isn't just a first century Athenian problem. (laughs) This is a human problem. It has been for a very long time. In our Old Testament lesson, the ancient preacher of wisdom poked at this problem when he said, whatever has come to be, it's already been named. The more words, 
the more vanity, and how does this benefit humankind? Church, we're restless when we're not doing what we were made for. We're restless when we're not being who we were made to be. We're restless, we're twitchy, we're jumpy. And it works itself out in all kinds of different ways. We get addicted to stuff. Or we need to be constantly entertained, distracted, diverted. Or we overwork, or we overeat, or we overexercise, or we spend an inordinate amount of time scrolling through those feeds, making sure everybody knows what we think about everything. Or we skate along from one thing to the next, relationship to relationship, friendship to friendship, lover to lover, project to project, idea to idea. The list is long. All of the games that we play... <laughs> on all of the tennis courts because we don't even know where we are. We don't know who we're supposed to be. See, there's a built-in, hardwired unsettledness to being human. And part of growing up is to stop twitching, to stop jumping long enough to figure out what that restlessness is about. What is it there for? What does it mean? Where is it meant to lead us? And so that's why when Paul gets his shot, he takes it. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's like he's saying, everywhere I look in this great city, all I see is people longing for something more. All I see is people reaching out for something more, trying to find coherence, trying to find meaning, trying to find something better. Paul just wants to show them how to play the real thing. Uh, earlier uh, last week, I was listening to the old uh, Postal Service album, uh, give Up, I think is the only Postal Service album. I also think it's a masterpiece, but I realize that's a subjective take. Anyhow, there's little melancholy lines throughout that whole album. There's one in particular on a song called This Place is a Prison. This is what it says. And I know it's not a party if it happens every night. Pretending there's glamour and candelabra when you're drinking by candlelight. I mean, if, if old St. Paul heard that album, he'd say, Ben Gibbard, I perceive that in every way you are very, very religious. Let me tell you why your pretend parties feel like a prison to you. Let me show you where the real party is. We would do well, I think, church, to learn from him. So Paul, he can't exactly quote scripture to them. I mean, he could, but they don't know scripture. It wouldn't be meaningful to them. They don't know it. So instead, what he does is he reads them. He reads their culture, and he quotes them back to themselves. He mentions an altar he saw with an inscription to the unknown God. It's like some idol maker was just doing due diligence, running scared, trying to make sure every base was covered. I don't know, but it's Paul's foot in the door. Let me tell you about that God, Paul says. 
And right out of the gate, the God that Paul describes is like no God they had ever known. Paul begins to talk about the God who made the world and everything in it. He is not the God of love or the God of water or the God of war or the God of thunder. (laughs) He's not the God of whatever. He's not the God of this thing or that thing. He is the God of everything. And just as they're beginning to perceive that or try to think about what that would look like, he gives them a a vision even bigger. He says that the God of everything, he doesn't live in temples made with human hands, and he's not served by human hands. I mean, remember where they are. They're high atop this city that is literally crammed with temples built for the service of the gods. (laughs) Socrates' student Xenophon said that Athens was really just one great altar. It was just one great big sacrifice. It was easier to find gods there than men. Paul wants them to know the God that I am talking about will not be found in this system. He cannot be found in this system. He is completely beyond it. And then Paul stretches them even further. In verse 25, (laughs) he says, This God, the God of everything, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. And this this was so unlike the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. I mean, they were prickly and angry and capricious and feuding. They needed all kinds of stuff all of the time. And that meant that humans had to scramble to give it to them if they wanted some favor from the gods. The notion of any kind of love or any even kind of affection between the gods and humans completely unheard of. It was all need and coercion and manipulation and grappling. And Paul says, let me tell you, it is not like that at all with the God of everything. In fact, it's the opposite. He himself gives to all mankind. He is the giver of life and breath and everything. He doesn't need anything from you. He is the one who gives you everything. You know, they don't know it. They don't know it at the time, but of course we do. Paul is telling them about the God of Scripture, the creator God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose intention it is to bless the whole world. He's talking about the God who binds himself to a people in love and keeps those promises even when his people don't. He's talking uh, about the God who willingly and gladly goes to his own death in order to keep his promises and forgive his people and remake the world. So if that's what that God is really like, what Paul says in verse 27 shouldn't be a surprise, not to them, not to us, and that is that this hard-wired restlessness in humans exists for a reason. God put it there. He put it inside of us so that people like you and me will seek God and perhaps feel our way towards him and maybe find him. 
I love the images that those words evoke of looking, longing, learning, grasping, fighting, stumbling around. Not so that we can get up every day and start it over again, so that eventually, eventually we will find him. Because he is not hiding from us. Paul says he is not actually far from each one of us. And then he quotes their own poets back to themselves. It's his way of saying, you already know this. You've already suspected this for quite some time. You've already been haunted by the God of everything. And I'm just here to put together the pieces for you. To go back to the analogy, this is a tennis court. And it's made for tennis. And I'm going to show you how to play the game. Or more pointedly, this is God's good world. And you're a human made in his image for the good of this world. And he has made you in love for himself. And when you find him in faith, you will find rest from your restlessness. You'll know what you have been made for. You'll be given a new way to live in this world. And I know you know it. This too is not just for first century Athenians. Is for me and you too. Some of us here this morning may be on the cusp of entering into that rest for the first time in our lives. Others of us here this morning may need to return to that rest after running away to some far country of our own making. Either way, church, he is not far from us. He is not hiding from us. He has made us for him. And he has made us for this wide, big, beautiful world. And that finding always looks like repentance. That's what Paul says. He says God calls all people everywhere to repent, which means to turn away from all of that stuff that we've used to replace him or to stand in for him or to push him away and just turn towards him in faith. And Paul says that's best to do now because this story is heading somewhere. It's not just going in circles. It's not just repeating itself. This story is heading somewhere to this day that is fixed upon which God will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed for that job. There is a day coming when the world will be set right, where it will be restored to the peace in which and for which it was originally created. And of course... You know, everyone listening to Paul will go, okay, who is that guy that's going to judge the world in righteousness? Because Paul doesn't name him. Instead, he chooses this whopper of a way to identify him. He pins the veracity of everything that he has just said on the central scandal of the Christian faith. Of this, Paul says, he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. And now we know who he's talking about. The high creator God of everything who has come near to us in love 
even though it cost him everything. <laughs> we know him in Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Jesus. It's like he said in the gospel lesson, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. <laughs> so when they heard this, Luke says that the crowd divided three different ways. Some mocked him. Resurrection was a bridge too far. It was too absurd, too foolish, too unthinkable. But you know, maybe some of those who mocked were using mockery like we sometimes use mockery as a way to guard against hope. As a way to protect ourselves from something that sounds so beautiful that we'd crush us if it wasn't true. Others who heard what Paul said said, hey, we're going to hear you again about this. We need to think about this for a little bit. We're going to come back to it. And others, Luke said, believed. And they entered into a rest that day that they had never felt before. They entered into a meaning and a purpose and a love that would shape them every day for the rest of their lives. They had found the one they thought was unknown. Let me pray for us. Father, you know us so well. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know every last one of the games that we play <laughs> to try to make meaning and purpose and give us satisfaction and happiness. You know all of them, all the in intricacies of it. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to see and to believe. To see who you really are, that you're not hiding from us, that you have given us everything in the person of Jesus. Father, help us to see and to believe that for our good and through the life and the purpose and the meaning that you give us for the good of the broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.